0: Think of uh, an F5 tornado as it, was. it levels neighborhoods, not a brick standing on top of a brick, but there'll be a few trees. Branches are all off, but they're standing. That's what the Christian life is like through tornadoes, through difficulties, through sufferings, through persecutions, if that's what the Lord has in store for us. Our this is the call to stand firm, to make it through the storm and to uh, keep believing and keep following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that, at least if you're like me, you're thinking, yeah, but we already know we're going to stand. We already know the Lord preserves us. We have passages like Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have passages like John 10, 28 to 29, I give eternal life to my sheep, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. We have a passage like John 17, 11, where Jesus prays, Holy Father, preserve them in your name. You know, that's a prayer that's going to be answered. And Romans 8:38: neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, there are some theologies which take those passages and build Um, a theology on those passages only and we might refer to that as sort of a hyper calvinism which says hey once you're saved you're good to go if you're one of the elect you'll make it all the way to the end and you don't have to really do a thing it'll be a piece of cake it'll be a breeze and there is no effort required of you but when we read the bible we discovered that indeed we will make it to the end and god will preserve us but it will be through a lot of blood sweat and tears it will require a lot of effort it will require a lot of running the race, working out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in us. And so as Christians, Paul actually can look us eye to eye, and as, as it were, and say, look, you need to stand firm. I want you to stand firm. He knows they'll make it, but he wants them to stand firm in the Lord. And I want to just remind us of what he said in verses 17 down through the end of chapter three, because He's really giving us some reasons why we need to stand firm. Why do we need to stand firm? Because we are surrounded by people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And he tells them join in imitating me keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us why is he saying this the apostle paul knows the temptation to have our eyes move from focusing on the apostolic lifestyle from genuine godliness and have our focus move to those who are enemies of the cross of christ who live for this world only whose god is their belly comfort, convenience, satisfying their every whim and wish and urge. And in one commentary, I read this, which I think is really helpful in flushing out what it is uh, and and how great the temptation is to follow after those who are enemies of the cross rather than after uh, the lifestyle of obedience. There are a lot of people who talk a lot about Jesus Christ, but are enemies of the cross of Christ. That is, they want still to live after the flesh so bad that the idea of being crucified with Christ, the death of the old life, the death of the old man, the death of the old flesh life is irritating to them. They don't want to hear it. They are enemies of that message. They want to tell you that you ought to be prosperous. You ought to be successful. You ought to be living in luxury. You are God's child. You ought to be indulging your flesh. Whatever you desire, just ask God, insist on God, command God. It is an interesting period in church history where where those who are indulging their flesh look upon it as spiritual superiority. You know, if you only had enough faith, you could be jetting across the United States in your own Learjet. So it is rather tragic because these people are opposed to the life of sacrifice, self-denial. And yet that is the first step that Jesus said was necessary to be a disciple of his. You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. So the apostle knows the temptation that it is for us as believers to actually fix our gaze on them. And so he says in Philippians three seventeen, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Don't take your lifestyle from the world, from those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Take your lifestyle from the apostles. The second reason why it's important that we stand firm and wait is because we're, that we stand firm is because we're waiting for Jesus. And while we wait for Jesus to come back, and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. We have a duty to wait well and to stand firm. So Philippians 4.1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord. The day is coming when Jesus will come back. There's many who are going to come and try to pull you away. Don't model your life after them. Don't follow them. Instead, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And I want to highlight that one word, thus, before we dive into verses 4 through 7. The word thus, stand firm thus in the Lord, or stand firm in the Lord in this way. We might be asking, well, in what way are we supposed to stand firm? What's he referring to? What's the thus actually refer to? And thanks to people who paid attention in seventh grade grammar and who are really good at diagramming Greek, which I am not, Uh, they they make the case, and I think it's a good exegetical case, that Paul goes on in verses 2 through 9 to tell us the thus of verse 1. And so we might ask, how do we stand firm? Paul tells us in verses 2 down through 9. The first way we have to stand firm or that involves us is we have to work through conflict. We noticed that last time. That is incumbent upon us to work through conflict. And the next way we have to stand firm or the next way to stand firm and that's what i want us to notice tonight is found in verses four through seven and in order to stand firm we need gladness in the lord obvious gentleness and protected hearts those three things so let's begin by looking at how to stand firm in verse four under the theme of gladness in the lord rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice. So the word rejoice means gladness or delight. Nothing inherently interesting about uh, that word. I draw your attention to the fact that Paul says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. It's always enough if the Lord says or gives us a command once. That's enough for us to obey. But what takes place here is the Holy Spirit inclines Paul to write this twice. In other words, uh, our attention is uh, being caught, or it should be caught by this command to rejoice. Gladness and delight in the Lord is crucial to our standing firm, and so Paul repeats it. Notice the language rejoice always. It's not rejoice when it's easy, rejoice most of the time, but it's actually a rejoice always. So in any circumstance, whether we're young or old, whether we're suffering or successful, in any circumstance... We are those who are called to rejoice. And we see this in the apostles, Acts 5.40, when the council had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So they're being persecuted and they're rejoicing always. Uh, You throw Paul and Silas in prison. (laughs) And what are they doing in Acts 16.25? About midnight, they're singing hymns, and the other prisoners are listening to them. Again, they're rejoicing. Always, James in chapter one, verse two says, "Count it all joy, my brother, when you brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds." And First Peter one six, in this salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So imprisonment, persecution, trials, which are arguably the most difficult things to rejoice in. In those trials and difficulties and persecutions, we are called to rejoice in the Lord because the call for our rejoicing is to rejoice always. Notice as well the qualifier, rejoice in the Lord. Human beings will let us down. Jobs will let us down. Our closest family members and friends will let us down. Everything in this world will let us down, including ourselves. We will let ourselves down. But there is always, from sunup to sundown, 365 days a year, 24-7, there is always a reason to rejoice in the Lord. I just wrote down some of the blessings which are ours in Christ that we can rejoice in. We always have a reason to rejoice that our sins are forgiven and the record of our debt has been canceled. We always have a reason to rejoice in the Lord that we've been redeemed from slavery. We are bought with the price. We no longer belong to Satan or the world or ourselves, but we have a new owner, a delightful master, King Jesus, who uses his authority to serve and to bless us. We have an inheritance which will not spoil, fade, or become defiled. It's laid up for us in heaven, and we're being guarded for it. That's a reason to rejoice. We are reconciled with God, and now that we're reconciled, we are his children. We've been adopted into the family. We belong to a family out of which we will never be kicked. We are loved by a father who will never leave us nor forsake us. There awaits us at the second coming of Christ a new body, like Christ's own glorious body. Paul just referred to that at the end of Philippians 3. And this body will no longer be subject to pain, sorrow, death, or crying. And we currently stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, clothed in his salvation, which means we stand spotless and regarded as righteous before God, even though we didn't do anything for that. Jesus did it all for us. Those are just a few. We can multiply this, I'm guessing, by a hundred. Reasons to rejoice. the Lord, I didn't even cover the daily reasons why we can rejoice in the Lord for his provision for us as his creatures and as his children that he loves and takes care of. I want us also to notice that this rejoicing is a command. So Paul is so confident that Jesus Christ is worth rejoicing over that he commands us to be glad. Uh, This is incredible. God wants us to have joy so much that he commands us have joy. Be glad in me. Rejoice in me. Paul was in prison. He had a death sentence hanging over his head. He had been beaten. He had been left for dead after stoned. He had been adrift at sea for a day and a night. He was beaten with rods three times. Five times he was whipped with 39 lashes. And he says we should rejoice in the Lord always. And it's a command. So this is our duty which means that rejoicing and joy in the Lord is a thoughtful act of the will. This joy that we're being commanded to do is not a fleeting emotion. It's not a fleeting feeling. Regardless of how we feel, we're actually called to rejoice in the Lord, to be glad in the Lord. We can't command feelings, which means that what he's calling us to is indeed involving our mind, rejoicing in the Lord. Who is Lord? What has he done for me? And then the will, rejoicing, singing, being glad, having our entire attitude changed. The psalmist bears this out, Psalm thirty-four, one: I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. All times, I will bless the Lord at all times. Wow, the psalmist goes through a lot of highs and lows. Even at the bottom, yes, I will bless the Lord at all times. Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Without joy, we are weak. Without rejoicing in the Lord, we are indeed weakened as God's people. Joy is vital, and rejoicing in the Lord is vital to our standing firm. So we might be asking, how do I rejoice in the Lord? Part of it is just recounting the blessings that he's been given to us. Maybe we actually need to be singing Maybe we're not. Maybe we make a joyful noise, right? If you're like me, you make a joyful noise. We can sing to ourselves, right? There are countless ways that we can rejoice in the Lord. The second uh, way that we can stand firm is through obvious gentleness. And I just say the word obvious because he writes, "Let it be known to all men. Let your gentleness or reasonableness be known to all." Which means this isn't like a hidden gentleness or reasonableness. This is something that is so part of the warp and woof, of the warp and woof of our lives as a church and also as us individually that we actually get the reputation of being very reasonable and gentle people now the word that's translated reasonable is uh, also translated gentle mild forbearing fair reasonable moderate or yielding Uh, one word study puts it this way equitable gentle in the sense of truly fair by relaxing overly strict standards in order to keep the spirit of the law. It's a sweet reasonableness that knows when to relax the strict legal requirements concerning others to carry out the real spirit of the law. 1 Timothy 3.3, regarding elder qualifications, it's translated gentle. Titus 3.2, it's translated be gentle. James 3.17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. So this language of reasonableness includes the language of gentleness. The opposite, which can be sometimes a great way of highlighting this, is a spirit that's unyielding. That says, here's the letter of the law. When people don't toe the line on it, I will let them know it in no uncertain terms. We are strict legalists. We are strict in keeping of the law. And of the requirements, and so when people fail, we are harsh and we are unyielding. What the Apostle Paul describes here uh, in Philippians is a gentle spirit that is the opposite of unyielding. And let me let me highlight uh, this unyielding spirit just for one moment. I had a uh, a great remembrance this past week. <laughs> Um, Some of you might remember Fred Coy. He actually taught music at Pillar Christian Grade School when I was in junior high. And he had this phrase called being dead right. And what he meant by that is when you're singing in a choir, if you sing, let's say, middle C, and you're perfectly on pitch, but the rest of the choir is not because they don't have great pitch, you can sing that middle C perfectly on tone, and you will stick out like a sore thumb and be dead right. You're right, right? You got the middle C, (laughs) but it sounds horrible because everybody else is like somewhere between a C and a C sharp. (laughs) And the goal of a choir is to sing together, hopefully on the right note. And he illustrated that one time we had a classmate actually get hit by a car. And I'm not saying he should have said this, but he said the individual was in the crosswalk and uh, the car was required to stop. And the individual kept going and got hit by the car. The individual on the crosswalk was not dead right, thankfully, but they were right, but hurt right now. They're right, but now they're hurt. And there's a way, beloved, in the Christian life to be right, but to handle our rightness in a way that makes us dead, as it were, unfruitful, no longer reasonable or gentle. And so what the Apostle Paul is encouraging us in and commanding us to is to be those who indeed love doctrine, love what is right, love God's commandments, but also to love people. And as we help each other through the Christian life, we ought to be those who are not only concerned about being right, but about being gentle in our rightness and about being reasonable in how we treat others, extending them the same patience that God has extended us, And that we also need from them because we are fellow sinners. And then finally, I want us to notice number three, protected hearts are necessary for standing firm. Now we're going to end with guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do. But Paul actually strings from the end of verse five, beginning with the Lord is at hand, down through verse 6, a ton of things that lead us to this peace. And so we're going to start walking through those things and end with this peace. So he begins by saying, the Lord is at hand in verse 5. Let me paraphrase that. The Lord cares. The Lord is near. The Lord is not far off or aloof or distant. He's not uninvolved or uncaring. The Lord is near. It's just the word for near, meaning like close by locationally. So the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't have anxiety about things. Don't be anxious about things. Jesus actually talks extensively about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Anxiety is often fueled by control, by the need to always feel in control and know or control outcomes. We might say anxiety is the opposite of trust. Trust says, Lord, you are in control. I trust you. Anxiety says, Lord, I'm going to control as much as I can because I trust me more than I trust you. And the Apostle Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. It doesn't mean we're to be uncaring people. I hope all of us have burdens on our hearts. I hope all of us care deeply about people and about certain things that the Lord has laid on our hearts to care about and to work for the benefit of. We should each have that. Being free from anxiety doesn't mean that all of a sudden we just don't care about anything anymore. But it does mean that we live a life of trusting God. We live a life where we look to the Lord, we do what we can, and we look to the Lord to bring the outcomes which will be most glorifying to his name and beneficial to those that we love and care for. So he says, don't be anxious in anything, but in everything by prayer. Now, this is a strong but there. Sometimes the word but is a mild transition. Here, it's actually a strong adversative. So what is being contrasted here is anxiety and prayer. In other words, what is one of the greatest ways to work through anxiety and help put anxiety to bed? Prayer. They are almost the total opposite. Anxiety says, I'm going to handle this on my own. Prayer says, Lord, this is too big for me. Lord, I need you to handle this. Anxiety says, Lord, I'm in control. Prayer says, Lord, you're in control. One of the most powerful antidotes to anxiety is prayer. We can't add a single inch to our height. We can't add a single dollar to our account, a single hour to our life, nor a single desire of our hearts through worry. If our entire lives are in the palm of God's hand, then we don't need to worry and to fuss. Jesus says, birds of the air, they get food. Lilies of the field are dressed in a way that, I don't know who the fashion that Paris, right? They still have their fashion shows that would make them jealous. And God will clothe us and he will feed us as his children more so than them. There is one short quip from a notable theologian in the late 15th and early 16th century, Martin Luther. It goes like this and I hope it proves helpful to you. Pray and let God worry. Now that is said with the most reverence possible. Pray, put it on God's plate. He's the only one big enough and powerful enough and strong enough to actually bring about a good outcome. Pray and let God worry. I think that gets at the heart of what Paul is saying here. Instead of being anxious about things, we should in everything pray. And then he goes on to talk about two things, which are, the language is uh, fairly, I don't want to say explicit, but uh, helpful. But, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to God, of course, with thanksgiving. So the two words, supplication and request, stand out. Now the word for supplication is, the, the definition is praying for a specific felt need. It's heartfelt petition arising out of deep personal need or a lack of something. Request be made known, it's just simply the word for request. It's an ask. This is asking God for something. This is, I think, well uh, illustrated in children. When children are, let's say, one, two, or three, or when they first learn to talk, maybe not one, but two or three or four, they have almost no filter in their request to parents. They will ask for anything. They will ask, it doesn't matter what it is, They will come and say, hey, can I have this? Can you get me uh, this? And I think as adults, we can be tempted to forget that before God, we are children. And he's commanding us and telling us that instead of worrying about things, we actually need to come and bring our supplications and requests to God. Let our requests be made known to him. So we tell him, Lord, this is my request. This is what I would like And I know that in our culture, and I know that in the church, this is often abused. And I know that we probably, many of us might have in our hearts, well, I don't want to do that because it just feels so selfish. But let me ask this If the question was asked you, what do you want? What are you asking for? Would your prayers actually answer it? Would mine? If God's saying, what are your requests? would our prayers actually answer that question? Well, here, Lord, here are my requests. Here are my supplications to you. I've heard talks on prayer which have made prayer such a scary, exciting, or scary, exacting, frightening, theologically intimidating thing that I left thinking there's no way I can even pray. What we're commanded to do here is actually let our requests be made known to God as his children. We just sang what a friend we have in Jesus, there's a line, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain, anxiety we bear, all because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. Do we let our requests be made known to God? We recently had to evict legally, I think we were required to, someone from a rental house. And my life was filled with a ton of anxiety, which I didn't even realize I had at the time. And when the court date finally came, I appeared before the judge and uh, didn't want to be there at all. (laughs) The judge looked at me down from his perch and said, what are you asking me for? I remember thinking, I'm not asking you for anything, sir. Like, I don't even want to be here. This is your court. You can do whatever you want. And I didn't say that. I just said, I'm not sure. What do you mean? And he said, what are you asking me for? I said, oh, I guess we're asking for an eviction. He said, that's what I wanted to know. And then he took it from there. And it was a relief. It's in the hands of the law. Now someone who has authority to handle this can handle it. Beloved, what would a request be if God looked at us and said, I want you to bring your requests. I want you to bring your supplications. Bring them to me. I want to hear them. What are they? We're actually commanded to do that. What are we asking the Lord to do? And we might say, what if God isn't interested in the minutiae of my life? I love turning to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If there were ever a time in redemptive history when God could have communicated to us that we are not worth his time. It would have been at the cross. It would have been right before Jesus hung there and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the three hours of darkness hit and the light shut off. It would have been right before that. And we would have had an eject button. But beloved, this is how much God cares for you and cares for me and cares for all of his children. There was no pause there was no Egypt. God carried it out. And Jesus on the cross was imputed with all of the worst of us, our thoughts, words, and deeds. The wickedness of it, the sinfulness of it, the horribleness of it, all the putrid ugliness of our sin, which is heinous in God's sight, was all put on Jesus. And he paid it. And the Father in doing that and the Son in doing that have declared in no uncertain terms, I love my people. And if you believe in Jesus, then you're one of those people and so am I. And so we don't have any legitimate right then to think, does God even care about the minutia of my life? If he would do that, won't he graciously give us everything else, including perseverance, but more than that? Doesn't he care for even the details of our requests, of course he does. He's more than proven that. So beloved, if we're going to stand firm, if we're going to be a people who are going to attain to this peace which passes all understanding, we've got to just lay a request to God. Lord, I have a heart for this person. Lord, I'm burdened here. Lord, I'm worried over here. Lord, I need help. Lord, I don't know how we're going to make it through this month, through this week, through this day. Whatever they are, Are we doing just that? And then he says, pray with thanksgiving. So again, we're thanking God for the blessings he has provided us. And we're running those blessings through our minds and hearts and across our lips to him. This doesn't just bring him glory. It's also incredibly important for our own spiritual well-being. Because we're reminded again, we're actually reminding ourselves, "Oh yeah, Lord, you have done all this for me. Wow. You're incredible. You are a great God. Then I want to conclude with verse 7. The peace of God, when we know the Lord is at hand and that is running through our minds, the Lord is near, he cares. When we are not living in this world of anxiousness, but in contrast, we are praying to the Lord, we are laying our worries and cares and burdens at the foot of his throne. Then here's what takes place. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now Jesus wants us to have peace. He said that to his disciples, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Lord wants not just his disciples, but his church to be a place where people have peace. I want us to notice something about this peace. It's a peace which surpasses the intellect. Catch that. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It surpasses one's ability to reason. It surpasses one's mind. It's, a, it's an interesting way to put it. It's like it's a peace which take the mind and just go beyond it. It's it, it, it's something that comes from the Lord. It's You could argue maybe one of the most experiential parts of the Christian life. It's a peace which is more felt than understood, more experienced than understood on account of prayer. The peace is supernatural. It's it's the peace of God. Arguably, it comes from God. And this peace guards our hearts and our minds. Now, the language for guard is to keep watch over like a military sentinel to protect or to guard. So some have translated this or given the notion that this peace, which surpasses all understanding, will march around our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is continually on watch. It guards and protects. It stands on top of the wall of Jericho, our hearts and minds inside, and it is always on the lookout, and it is always guarding us, this incredible peace. What the Lord wants us to know is that this peace is available to all of his children, and this peace comes through prayer. So beloved, how are we gonna stand firm are we going to go out this week for the next six days and live in a world where people are enemies of the cross and the world's going to give you the message and me the message? Hey, you're nothing if you don't have this. Hey, here's a better way to walk. Hey, it's your best life now. Hey, don't miss out on all this fun. You're just getting older. Hey, you got to get all the gusto you can. The world's going to tell you that. It's going to tell me that every single day this week. Our own flesh is going to say, hey, yeah, that sounds pretty good. The devil's going to walk in there and do his work. How are we going to stand firm? Well, we're going to stand firm by rejoicing in the Lord, and we're going to find our delight in him, not in the world. We're going to find our delight in how much God has displayed his love for us in Jesus Christ, particularly at the cross where he died in our place. Instead of being anxious about missing out on things and what's going to come in this world, we're going to pray. We're going to lay our requests before the Lord. And we're going to look to him to provide the peace that surpasses the world's expectations, that surpasses all understanding, the peace which says, you're mine. I love you. I've paid for all your sins in my son. And don't you dare believe the world's message. The best is yet to come when I come again. The best is yet to come when you get to heaven. Let's pray.